Welcome to the Confusion Experiment, and this is a brand new podcast that is based on my brand new book that uh, chronicles my 100 days of meditating for an hour every day to see if meditation could heal my confusion. And it did, but it did a whole lot more than that. And Kukai um, and I know each other from our time together in Anchorage. And so when I put together a talk shortly after my 100 days, because I was so blown away by the experience, I asked Kokai to help me because it was my first live streaming event. So he and I go way back, and we've had a lot of beautiful and passionate conversations about race and community. And when um, George Floyd was murdered, he was one of the people I reached out to, and I learned a lot more about what he's been doing and the work that he's been doing on behalf of uh, creating space to offer safe space to indigenous individuals and people of color and, and also just working with a couple of other really interesting people that I'd love to interview as well who are dealing with intergenerational trauma. When Kokai and I were talking last night, I was saying to him, you know, I've been watching all sorts of different interviews and um, people like Dr. Michael Beckwith from the Agape Spiritual Center in Los Angeles and others who have been saying that the white people are the ones that are going to have to deconstruct racism. That's not going to come from the oppressed. And so when I was talking to Kakai last night, you know, I said to him, I said, it's hard for people to deconstruct something that's subconscious and maybe not even something that people are aware of. And so that began this discussion that led us to today. So I want to welcome you, Kakai, to the show. Thank you for being here. Peace, peace. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for making space for this conversation. Thank you for being vulnerable. And thank you for having the seeds within you of hope that we can reach the new horizon that is before us. Yes. Well, one of the things you had said in our discussions leading up to today is that we were going to focus on solutions. And we are, um, because I yes. think that it's very helpful for people to walk away with one thing at the very least that can be applied. But let's let's talk a little bit about, and I'd like you to maybe talk to us a little bit about what you've been learning, because you've actually gone through like a training process, because you're in, you're in such alignment with the work of these two individuals, uh, Dr. Joy and Dr. Risma. Tell us, what is the, the basic understanding of this intergenerational trauma? Oh, okay. So, yes, in 2008, Dr. Joy DeGurry was brought up by Senator Betty Davis to Anchorage, Alaska for Black History Month. And so I will receive the honor of spending lunch with her and listening to her. And then Resma Minikam is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he is the second foremost inter- generational trauma expert in the country. And so in a nutshell, elevator speech, what we're talking about is trauma does not live in our intellect. It does not live in our personality. It does not live in the frontal lobe of our brains. It lives in our brain stems and our nervous systems in our bodies. It is the reaction, once triggered, once given stimuli, that reminds you of a traumatic event that causes your personality to be blindsided. You are no longer in the present. You are reliving that experience that was traumatic, and it is completely taken over. You're not who and what you are. Now, 
if you're not having that dramatic an experience, then you're not being triggered. You're annoyed, you're irritated, you're frustrated, but you have not reached what Resma and Dr. Joy are making reference to. Uh, what they're making reference to is what occurred to me Wednesday and Thursday night last week when I had nightmares of police pointing guns in my face. And that's because of the last five weeks since Memorial Day, seeing in the news since Ahmaud Arbery, various black bodies being destroyed on the national news. Now that tends to affect people and it affects people in different ways depending on their relationship to the trauma of intergenerational that's occurred in North America over the last 500 years. And so that would be the short answer to that question. In doing some research and from Dr. Joy, she says it's possible for intergenerational trauma to go back 14 generations. So her her focus seems to be the intergenerational trauma in African Americans because of slavery, mm -hmm. which is understandable. And it sounds like what you're talking about here, as far as being triggered and the nightmares and this experience that you're having of this trauma still in your system. Is that is that accurate? That that is that is very accurate. Yes. So Resma expands on her work by now saying everyone in North America is dealing with this trauma because of what has happened in North America. So native people are dealing with it because there was a genocide occurred that occurred against them where they were physically destroyed. Okay? They went from 100 million to, depending on who you're talking to, between six to eight million, okay? Mm -hmm. And then African persons were brought over, mixed with Native people, mixed with Europeans and each other to produce what I am, and that was enslavement. The third person who is dealing with trauma, okay, so this is coming from Mark Clark, and this is Native Wisdom, and it's not called PTSD, but PITS is the white body from having done the genocide and having done the enslavement. It's called perpetrator-induced trauma syndrome. They find it primarily among people who are large-scale butchers. So if you're in agriculture, you're the livestock, and you're killing cows, killing pigs, killing uh, chickens all day long, you become depressed because you know you are murdering a sentient being and it is now affecting your nervous system. It may not be affecting your immediate personality, which is what we value here in America because that's individualism, but it's affecting your body, who and what you are. You know that murder is wrong and that that's what's going on. So the exact same thing, the average soldier who engaged in manifest destiny in North America was hurt by doing that. They were regular human beings. And we have a tendency in North America when we think back to enslavement and think back to segregation, that we think of these people as being sociopaths and we dehumanize them. And so these two teachers are trying everything within their power in order to help us remember that these persons were really no different than us and they had to justify what was going on around them to themselves in order to cope 
And in doing so, they brainwashed themselves to do atrocities, no different than Nazi Germany brainwashed themselves to, in order to kill 14 million people in World War II. It sounds like this is a little bit what also Dr. Risma talks about when he, when you were saying he's been talking about the trauma that is built in white people as it yes. relates to slavery. So, and, and when we, and when you brought that up last night, it definitely was a showstopper. And one of the things I asked you was, do you get pushback when you bring up this theory that white people have this trauma syndrome also in their nervous system because they're dealing with the trauma of perpetration on innocent beings. Yes, I receive a lot of pushback because it goes against the culture of individualism. And that is what the 2020 mind is steeped in. As I end up having to work with the person and help develop a historical imagination and strip away some of the assumptions that they have about what has occurred here in North America. For example, Thomas Jefferson isn't dealing with the information that we're dealing with. In fact, it's a new thing to a lot of people when I say that Shakespeare doesn't know what we're talking about when we talk about racism. Neither does Julius Caesar. The ancient world doesn't know what we're talking about. And so when we try to project individualism to ancient Egypt five, 6,000 years ago, or China, when things were collective-minded and collective culture. It was tribal. You got your identity from being a part of a group. You did not get an identity from standing out from the group, which is how you get your identity in America. So we have some emotional attachments to ideas that our, our, our immediate ancestors or relatives, as our native friends would say, do not know what we're talking about. Okay? So, uh, yeah, I get a lot of pushback from that because then it means that you can not ask me to believe through conspiracy theories that the mainstream media has more influence over me than your grandpa, has more influence over you than your father. And your father is struggling with the idea of race, racism, or uh, whiteness because they were born into segregation, no different mm -hmm. than my grandparents and father was born into segregation. They were born into a system that was almost pure white supremacy, and there was no introspection until the civil rights movement occurred. And Dr. King leads America through a guided meditation where he can begin examining its relationship to race, racism, and whiteness. And that was done in a very tangible form with the Montgomery bus boycott, with the freedom rides, with uh, challenging admission to colleges, and by changing these behaviors, most of our white friends and family learned what was going on inside them, what emotional attachments they had. We have not done that in almost two generations. Mm -hmm. So the current generation is walking around in a totally different world than that, and even in a totally different world than me, and this is where the confusion arrives. They walk around with the Avengers as their blueprint, and the Avengers is multi-ethnic, multi racial, multinational. It's everybody. It's more of a reflection of the ideal, the horizon, the greater humanity that we know is possible, but we're having a hard time because of the trauma that's embedded in each body expressing in the here and now. First of all, if you're just joining us, thank you for tuning in. My name is Camille Conti. This is The Confusion Experiment, and I'm talking today with Kokai Nosa Kahere, who's a racial community healer 
if we start with the premise that we're dealing with a nervous system. Yes. A traumatized nervous system. Yes. Do we get to a point where the ongoing situation that's happening every day is continuing to traumatize our nervous system? Okay. Yes. And if we're dealing with the nervous system as a focal point for the healing, how do the situations that are still unfolding play into that focus? They help us engage in said focus. They help us recognize that our current strategies for coping aren't working and that we have to use something more potent. And that more potent would be connection. Uh, Resma is famous for saying that a nervous system is not complete by itself. Individualism is a lie. A nervous system is complete when there's two or three other bodies present. Mm -hmm. Two or three bodies complete the nervous system. Why? Because the energy has to flow. And at three bodies, the energy begins to flow. It doesn't even have any one spot to concentrate so that there is conflict. And each person can assist in the flow of the energy so that we feel heard. We feel that we've stated our experience. It's held and that we matter and we have meaning. We're able to help make meaning in two and three people, in dyads and triads. Well, I would imagine that protests then are a conduit for this this rewiring, this healing of the nervous system. Oh my goodness, yes, yes, right? you, are, you are right on it. So one of the insights that I received from a young person when I traveled up to Portland in order to get on the ground and find out, okay, so what's going on here? And this young person, oh my God, just a genius. They stated, what we think of as unity in America usually isn't how it plays out. And what we had just experienced from March and April and May was everyone unified because of the response to Mm COVID-19. All 50 states had the same experience. It didn't matter if you were male or female. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor. Didn't matter if you're on the East Coast or the West Coast, you were in the North or the South. Everyone had the same shared experience. That was the unity. So then when we got to see What's going on in the police departments through George Ford's murder on Memorial Day? We had a unified response. Mm -hmm. And so everyone got to the streets because we hadn't seen each other. And here was now a way for us Mm -hmm. to show that we know what's going on and we're not going to just sit there. We're going to do something about it. And it's in our hand. It's not, we're not begging anybody. There's no victim stance. People got mobilized and they're choosing to stand up for what their value and ideal is. We know it's possible and we're making that happen. So yes, that is a phenomenal experience of the harmonizing effect that a ritual such as the protest is occurring. So talk a little bit more about this nervous system approach and how can the common person like myself take what you're talking about and work with my own nervous system as well as other people's? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What we tend to do in America is try and make a monster out of the problem. And we make it so big that it becomes overwhelming. So what the beauty and the genius of what Resma is asking us to do is to help us 
find ease in our nervous system when we are around persons who are different from us or in conditions that cause us great discomfort. So you don't have to go and try and hunt down the KKK or transform an openly racist person, a neo-Nazi or someone who was just in prison for the last 25 years. That is not what we're attempting to do. What we're attempting to do is follow the Rosa Parks rule, which means that when it crosses my path, I'm going to do the right thing. So if you are a nurse, it means practicing equality, and when every child expresses pain, you take that serious. It means that if you're a teacher, you make a commitment to not send anyone in your classroom to detention. That is equality. We're going to figure it out as a community how we deal with disruptive behavior. We are not going to go to an authority figure. It means that if you are at Walmart, there are objective measurements, like if you're in security and you're checking people as they go out the door to make sure that the number of items on the receipt is the same that's in their basket. And you're a manager and you watch somebody. And out of a 30-minute period and 108 people, if they only check eight people and those eight people are black, then you have a very gentle, compassionate conversation with them, not to condemn them through the binary good or bad but to assist them in becoming aware of their implicit bias and then to change that behavior over time, just okay. like we want for us. Okay, now here's where, when we were talking about this last night, I jumped in like I'm doing right now. Because what you're saying is absolutely spot on. And I can feel how purposeful and healing it, it, it will be. However, mm -hmm. embedded in what you're saying is a, is a presumption that those individuals are aware of that moment. Of what moment? Of the moment of... Of the moment you're describing. You're describing these moments the... in the classroom. You're describing the moment yes. with the person. So I, think we, I, don't want, I don't think we should assume that that individual is aware of that moment. And I think we have to back it up a step to do what you're doing, which is to point out the moments. Because like I said to you yesterday, I'm trying to do as much as I can to be a part of the deconstruction of this situation and the rebuilding of a greater truth. However, I can't deconstruct something I'm not aware of. And it's one thing to not be aware of it because you're ignorant. It's another thing to not be aware of it because you just willingly choose not to ever look at it, right? So right. how do how do white people, I'm just going to call it like that, how do we wake up to something that we don't know is even there? Because we know, I, I mean, I know racism is real. I see it. I mean, I, I, I understand uh, to the best of my ability what is going on, but I can't understand what I'm not aware of. So part right. of how maybe you can help me and help others is to continue to point it out so that I can wake up to what's what I'm unconscious to. So then I go, oh, that moment. Yeah. Now I now I'm going to look for it so that when it comes, I cannot send the kid to detention. Right. 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 So that's why you make a blanket rule because so that you change the culture of the milieu, the culture of the environment. OK, here's the value. The value is that we're going to build community and when conflict occurs, we're going to figure out how to resolve that conflict without going outside of the community, right? So then that is to the, the teacher, when the conflict occurs, being able to unpack 
that conflict. Okay, because because otherwise we set up the school to prison pipeline. So we have through the social justice world uh, very specific behaviors that have been identified. And so what we do is start using those measurements, those objective measurements to go from the known to the unknown. Mm -hmm. The unknown is my self-evaluation. I have no relationship to race, racism or whiteness. That's what I'm starting with. That's known. And now I'm going to develop a relationship with those that lead to greater humanity. I start where I am. Now, that may mean that I start and I separate shame and guilt and judgment and relate and, and, and responsibility from being born into a situation that I didn't create, which is contrary to the culture of individualism. Culture of individualism says I take 110% responsibility for what's happening in my life. And on a certain level, you are a drop of the ocean, but you are not the ocean itself. And now you are part of a current. That current is not under your control. But we talk about it at times like that. So we may have to start with separating what you can do and what you cannot do, okay, and not be overwhelmed. And if, and this is a big thing, and I think this is what a lot of people on my uh, social media wall who have conversations with me are dealing with, in their own mind, being white means evil. It doesn't mean good. In their mind, they've got Hitler projected there. And so anything that starts saying, like the uh, 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 a security person at Walmart who knows they're a good person, and you point out this implicit bias that I counted, and out of 108 people, you did check eight of them. They may look at you and say, I check everybody. Don't fight them in that moment. Yes. And I, this is what I observed. Can we continue now? I want you to check everybody. Now, I want you to become more aware of what you are doing. And you now keep count. And we're going to keep count until it becomes secondhand behavior. And you start where they are and walk them to where we want them to be instead of the shame, the guilt, the feeling of responsibility and everything else that comes up that we have associated that are really unprocessed emotions around race, racism, and whiteness. Did mm -hmm. that answer the question? Yeah, definitely it does. And, and there has to be a willingness because you have to be willing. Like as a white sure. person, I have to be willing to move from my individualized self to the we. I've got to move from me to we. I got to care. Yes. I, you yes. know, I mean, a couple of people are, are talking about deconstructing the self and un, unpacking conflict. I mean, my confusion experiment in which I meditated for an hour every day for 100 days, if it did nothing else, it deconstructed myself. <laughs> I bet it did. <laughs> it did. You knew parts of Camille that you never knew existed. I see, see. Right? It's true. Listen to that. Ad. Yes. And it yes. was painful, and it was painful yes. because I had to, what meditation does is it create over time it creates, and it doesn't take a long time, but it creates a space between you and your thoughts, and you start to realize that you're not your thoughts. And once you start yes. to realize you're not your thoughts, 
you can more neutrally observe them and begin to deconstruct how they even became thoughts that are occupying a space in your mind. So this is all possible, but it's going to come with with willingness. It's going to come with um, a real desire to be a part of change, and it's going to come with some sacrifice because if we're talking about white people needing to do the deep dive for what's their agenda to do, then it has to come with a willingness to sacrifice and also a willingness to be accountable and responsible. I mean, at some point, right, I have to say, I take responsibility for what my ancestors did and believed. Even if I don't feel that that's the truth of who I am, in order for me to take the next steps, it feels like you're saying I have to accept, I don't have to inherit it, but I have to have some some level of accountability and responsibility to what was perpetrated through my lineage. Is that is that true? So yes, the insight that Resma is working from is that we're living books that we're not just right now that, that we came from a stream of humanity and mm-hmm. we're drawing on that stream of humanity. Okay, and so. That being said, we still, all truth comes in paradox. And that, that's what makes it interesting in this field of duality, okay? So, am I the beneficiary of the work that Dr. King did? Yes. And I was not there when he died in 68. I am not angry about what was going on at that time. You have to talk to Reverend Jesse Jackson. He was there and he can lay claim to the frustration at that time. I am concerned about what happened at nine o'clock this morning because Mm -hmm. I can influence that and you can influence that. And Mm -hmm. we can influence that by choosing to be different with each other, okay? And so when we find the resistance that comes up to us living out the high ideal that we can see, when we encounter on a state capitol a person who doesn't believe enough in the federal government or to the state government that they're walking there in protest with AR-15s. Some of us are going to have to be brave enough to go and teach and ask them what's going on that you're this scared, that you are brandishing guns, that you don't Mm -hmm. believe you have a voice, that these people will listen to you unless you have overwhelming force what about this human being over here that you're calling the governor, this human being over here that's an elected official that you're that scared of that you do not believe that your smile can influence them, that your hug can influence them, that breaking bread with them can influence them, which is how you would like me to treat you. And when they start to cry because you have opened the door for them to go into greater humanity, to see a different aspect of themselves, to leave the shadow and go into the light, that's when we're going to have to have a human continuum to help them because they've never looked at it that way before. Most of the time, most of the time they have an emotional attachment that this is the way things have been and this is the only way to get the thing across. And so we have to create that space like you were talking about where there's willingness in order to grow to the next level. Sometimes we do have to be confrontational like when they're being extreme and walking around But most of the time, it's the subtle thing of being able to hear when someone is, I had a hard day and this came up and someone called me racist. And I didn't agree with that. 
because it really felt like they were bullying me, to help them unpack that. It is the most human thing that is usually the greatest medicine. It's not something complicated like we want to make it to be because we're overwhelmed by the projection of the problem that we made into a monster in the first place when it was simply this person is intimidated by greater connection. Dr. King's most basic sermon was to talk about how interdependent America was, that he could not be an outside agitator as long as he was inside the United States of America. Mm -hmm. That a breakfast, a breakfast of the regular American breakfast through the economy showed our interdependence and how it benefited us. And it is the light of the benefit that comes from our interdependency, from our collective, that the culture of individualism is terrified of. That you truly are greater than who and what you perceive yourself to be right now. Well, and that definitely leads to this other point as well. You and I both share a close friendship and relationship to our mutual uh, friend, Kaleem uh, Nuruddin, yes. who I yes. also will have on the show at some point as well, because, yes. you know, and, and he's in an actualized state of consciousness, right? And what I mean by that is he has through his own devotional practices and studies and, and life living at 70 years of, of age, he's gone to the true identity. He's gone to the original identity, which he calls a divine identity. So yes. in his experience, he's like, you know, at some point we can work our way through each one of these steps on the ladder, but this really is solved when we see ourselves as sharing the same inherent divinity. Now, yes, whether we can have... A mystical realization of that <laughs> and avoid avoid the process whether some of us will have that and while we do the process is is to be seen but that's a, that's kind of like when Beckwith said the other day and I brought this up to you last night as well Dr. Michael Beckwith from the Agape Center in Los Angeles in one of his talks he last week he said while white people you guys have to you know, talk amongst yourselves and deconstruct racism and ask yourselves, what are we going to do about this? He says, but the oppressed individuals, whether they're Native Americans, African Americans, have to be willing to do the deep dive into themselves to heal the scar tissue of which you're speaking about, this, this internal intergenerational trauma-induced scar tissue, and to ask yourselves, ourselves, the oppressed ask themselves the question, how healed do we have to be so that when we come out of that work, we no longer identify ourselves as victims? Now, he goes on to say, that's not to say you will not have experience of being victimized, but it's a very different experience when you're victimized versus identifying yourself as a victim. And I thought that was a really large call to all of us or anyone who feels oppressed and feels like a victim. In other words, he's saying at some point, you have to go in and do the work to heal yourself of that identity and, and come out of it with a new sense of self. What are your thoughts True. on that? Okay, I, I, I would agree with that. Now I'm gonna have to say, like a good doctor, that I wanna take up Takishi, Ta, Takanishi's coat's perception that we don't take the assumption that as soon as you pull out the knife, all of a sudden the, the black body has healed and we act like that. 
We act like as soon as you take the instrument that is causing the harm away from the black and brown body, all of a sudden it has healed instantly, that it doesn't take time for that healing to occur without any new abuse. Well, I would say that's a construct of the mind because the mind wants to believe that it is that quickly dealt with, whereas the heart knows there's more to do. Correct. Right. Because when you look at it from that perspective, the knife is pulled out as you're, you know, so to speak, and it's, it's, all, it's done. Then you get to not have to feel the discomfort that comes with looking at the greater truth. Right. That's what that's what normally happens. OK, so once the abuse stops, once you take the battered woman out of the house, she can't you can't don't try and make her heal inside the house that's while right. the husband is still beating on her, which is right. what we want and say. That's what we think Harriet Tubman did. Harriet Tubman did not stay in the house. She left slavery. OK, that's Dr. Cornell West. You can't heal while you're still getting beat up in the fight like Rocky, okay? It's not it's not saint-like to suffer. That's Ernest Holmes. We can stop suffering. So once the abuse has stopped, once we take the person who is oppressed out of the oppressed state, they're not in the, refu the refugee camp anymore. They're here in America. They're in a safe relationship because safe relationships is how you heal trauma. Then, yes, yes a new identity can be born. And, and especially within uh, the African-American community, especially within the black community, there have been several oases that have been crafted in America in the midst of oppression. So we definitely know it's possible for our white brothers and sisters and our native brothers and sisters because we've done it ourselves. Yeah, when I first got up to Anchorage, Alaska and got into broadcasting and ended up working uh, on the morning show at a indigenous uh, Alaska native owned radio station. I, I did not know I was ignorant. Mm -hmm. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't realize it until I started to. And yes. it was uncomfortable to literally be on the air with someone who was doing what you're doing, which was pointing out to me my unconscious ignorance to racial bias. It took a lot for me to not close down and shut down when those moments were happening because it's very uncomfortable. You don't want to feel that feeling and you don't want to feel that you were so stupid or all the different things that you conclude. As a result of my willingness to go there, not only did I go through a healing and an education, but I was able to more authentically tap into the Alaska Native community with a greater understanding of who they were and what they had dealt with and the trauma that Alaska Natives have, have gone through and continue to go through on their home land up there, you know? Yes. So everything you're saying is very relevant today. I, I know you're going to come back and talk more because it's such a deep and wide topic. But as we come around to close today, tell us again if there was one thing that we could go and apply to help us feel empowered during this time, what would you suggest? I would want to give you a JFK one, two, three. And this is a how to change the world from Kokai and a JFK one, two, three. Number one, I want you to show love to yourself. And what that means is that you heal. 
you learn that you are enough right here and right now, you increase your self-esteem and you start showing up as your best self and living out loud. Number two, I want you to protect the vulnerable. And they will make themselves known when they see how out loud you are choosing to live your life. How on point, how much divinity you are allowing to flow through your nervous system. They will find you and they will tell you how to protect them. And then number three, include the marginalized. And that usually includes, and it's not limited to, the person that just found out that they have been being a bully. The person who just found out that their employees don't like their management style. The person that just received the bad review on their teaching in the classroom. They need to be included into the community too and pathways for doing that. And if you show love to yourself and you're protecting the vulnerable, you will see where they're hurting and how to bring them in. You know, when I'm thinking about this sportscaster, I saw this peripherally, so I don't have the specifics, but there was a sportscaster just a week or so ago that must have said something like all lives matter and he got fired. But what happened is he came back either before or after, I don't know, but he came back and said he had an awakening. He said, I didn't know. I was completely ignorant, right? So he had this awakening in real time. And it's like, he's the kind of person you're talking about. Instead of perhaps firing him, he True. might have been a good person to keep in the mix to help utilize an individual's experience of authentic awakening to this unconscious bias that you're speaking about. Yes. And I think this is an important part as we go forward is that there are people who are having authentic awakenings and they may be as marginalized as the more obvious individuals that are marginalized that feel shame for not knowing yes. any better. And that's a really powerful way to end this because, you know, I'm getting emotional. So whatever you're talking about right now is this feeling of humanity. It's like, you know what? We're all in this together. We can do this together. It takes everybody utilizing that great question, what is mine to do? What yes. is mine to do? And then just do what your experience is of that answer. Well, Kakai, listen, I want to thank you for this. I mean, a couple of things as we close. Number one, this idea of training people is, is really true. So I don't know how that's happening or when that's happening, but we'll have to continue to have you on the show so we can help people understand more of what you're talking about today. I also want to let everybody know that I have an upcoming change course that is uh, entitled Ready for Change. But before you can be ready for change, you have to prepare for it. Before you can prepare for it, you got to deal with it. Before you can deal with it, you got to understand what change really is. It, it's it's a topic we talk about a lot and we identify as happening, but we don't always really pause long enough to take the deep dive into what change really is because it's not exactly what we think it is. So if you're interested, you can go to my website, thisawakeningspirit.com, and um, right there you'll see everything you need to know about the course that's starting in January. I've got a reduced tuition for people impacted by COVID, and you can always reach out if you'd like to get some more information and to you, my beloved friend, I know you've got this book coming out. Tell us about it before we close. Oh, Processing Our Collective Trauma, uh, Police, Crimes Against Black Folk is the name of the book. And um, inspired by having conversations with younger people 
who are having the exact same epiphany that you just got through articulating the sportscaster had. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, I would like some guidance. I see what's starting to happen right now, and I don't understand it. And so the book starts in 2012 at the very, very beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement and then brings you forward with the epiphany of how we got where we are, along with some suggestions of what to do next. I am an activist. I don't like just talking about the problem. I'd rather spend the same time, time and energy implementing the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you do that extremely well. So thank you, Kakai. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my Thanks friend. for yeah. Thanks. great. <laughs> Thank you for your patience, everybody. Uh, getting things going today. Thank you very much for tuning in, and um, we'll do this again real soon. Yes. Thank you.